All right. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. As I have said many times before, and this morning is no different, uh, the gathering of the saints truly is the, the highlight of my week. Even uh, this morning, I found myself a little bit behind this week. Uh, I still, to this, this morning, don't know why exactly I was behind. I don't feel like I worked any less hard, but for some reason I found myself um, sort of trying to catch up this, this week. But the Lord is gracious and good, and I actually have something to preach. So, amen, amen. amen. Did you know that the gathering actually protects us from the evil one? It's part of the reason why I am so concerned when so, sometimes when people take one, two, three, four, five, six weeks off from the gathering, even for good reasons. I get concerned because, because the evil one attacks the weak. And when we're separated from fellowship, we become, we come, become weak. Do you realize that the, we live in a world that is full of evil and controlled by the evil one? Uh, during the week, we are exposed to enemy fire, many times on a constant basis. And when we are alone, when we separate ourselves from the body of Christ, we can begin to fall for the lies of the enemy. I do the same thing through the week. I can, I can fall for those lies and begin to think thoughts that are, that are not right. So it's time, I must take the time to come back to be a part of this gathering. And when we gather as a church, we have the opportunity to remind one another, to remind one another of the truth of God's word. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, beloved, this is not just a quote-unquote legalistic desire for you to be at church. It's not a, a desire to see more people in the pews. It's a, it's a concern that we need to be together so that we can combat the lies of, of the enemy. We have to understand that the recipients of the letter of Hebrews were enduring great suffering for their faith in Christ and were being pressured to renounce their faith. They were enduring great evil against them. And not surprisingly then, the writer, of, of the, uh, the writer encouraged them to hold fast their confession. He, he encouraged them to consider, consider ways to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And he encouraged them not to forsake the gathering, because that's where all these things happen, in, in one place. According to Hebrews 10, what was the purpose of the gathering? To encourage one another. And how were they to encourage one another? They were to encourage one another with the truth of God's word, with God's promises from his word. Beloved, we live in evil days, and I believe that it doesn't take much to see that the nation that we currently live in, uh, the great nation of, of the United States that has been a great nation for so long, I believe this nation is spiraling downward. The degradation we see is apparent. It's accelerating. We live in a world that doesn't tolerate the truth and doesn't tolerate dissent from what is accepted as the truth. 
Unfortunately, many in the church have fallen for this world's, the world's deception. Even now, people are forced to adhere to majority rule no matter the consequences. Last year, when churches were forced to close due to the COVID lockdowns, many churches refused to do so. And when those churches ran afoul of the, of the authorities, many in the Christian community said, well, they're getting what they're, what's coming for them. Doesn't Romans 13 say, obey the government? More recently, the question of vaccinations has arisen. Some believe it's good to be vaccinated against COVID, while others don't want to do so. I'm aware that, I'm very aware that both sides are represented in our church. We must understand that vaccines, though, are personal, and they're private, and they're divisive if we make them anything other than that. In the words of Romans 14, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind whether to be vaccinated. We must... Wow. I didn't know what, I didn't know that, I didn't think that was funny, but okay. That wasn't a dad joke. But we must recognize that there are arguments for and against vaccinations that solid brothers and sisters may differ in their reasoning. So, so we, there are arguments on both sides. Some choose to strengthen their natural immunity and some choose to be vaccinated while others choose both. In no case are we to push our brethren against their, their consciences. Do you all understand that? The government or the church must not intrude on that personal decision. Right now, some health officials are recommending universal vaccinations with no exceptions. But none. The media is certainly pushing this narrative. According to a recent article, Leanna Wynn says, who's a, she's a visiting professor of health, and health policy and management at George Washington University. She's also a Washington Post columnist and the former president of Planned Parenthood, if that tells you anything about her. She appeared on the network, CNN, several times to react to Joe Biden's sweeping vaccine mandate, which she evidently believes does not go far enough. She states, we need to start looking at the choice to remain unvaccinated as the same as we would look at driving while intoxicated. This is what she said to Chris Cuomo on CNN. You have the option not to get vaccinated if you want, but then you can't go out into public. You see, they're pushing this narrative even if you have natural immunity against the virus. The media and and government officials have called upon businesses and churches to enforce this compliance. Even now, churches, there are churches, a few churches, that require proof of vaccination to join in worship. How does that go with Hebrews Hebrews 10? Church, the best case scenario... Churches that do this, this is best case scenario, are depriving their members of fellowship and encouragement. Worst case, they're doing the bidding of a government controlled by demonic forces. Let me tell you, I'm not into conspiracy theories. I'm too, absolutely too, too serious about the truth. But here's the truth. We, if, if you don't see it, please look at it very carefully. We are being divided. We are being divided. Whether these divisions are intentional and there's a conspiracy or whether they're unintentional, I'll leave you to decide. But no serious Christian can argue that 
these mandates, mask mandates, lockdowns, vaccines have been divisive forces in our culture. And the church, unfortunately, the church at large has been no less divided. Now, I don't generally, and I think you know this, push my personal opinions regarding these things, masks, vaccines. I believe, I believe you need to make your own decision. You need, to study the, you need to study what's out there. You need to look at what's out there. You need to, to be informed by the truth. You need to ask people. There are people in this body who can give you both sides of the argument. You need to make that choice and, and do it on your own. Do you know why I don't push these matters? Because they're a matter of personal choice, but also because they're dividing the church. They're dividing the church. Now, you may, you may say to me, well, you're giving your opinion. Well, aren't you against lockdowns and, and government mandating vaccines? Yes, I'm, I'm very much against those things. Very much. I'm against those things because they are unbiblical. But if you choose to mask or not, or if you choose to vaccinate or not, these choices are your choices. You need to, as Mr. Ray Maringer used to say in seminary, you need to saddle your own bronc. You need to make that choice. As Christians, we may not agree on these things, but we cannot let those differences, uh, those differences of opinion divide us. That's, if you hear nothing else this morning about this, you need to understand that we cannot, as the body of Christ, let secondary issues like these things, like masks and vaccines and, and all these things, we can't let those differences of opinion divide us. I remember the mask hysteria of 2020. Some Christians accused those who questioned the effectiveness and safety of those masks of being unloving. Now, again, I'm not saying anything about masks. What I'm saying is, is that we can't try and we can't be divisive in what we do in terms of these secondary issues. A few even went so far as saying they, they were killing people. More recently, when an unvaccinated person gets sick, it sickens me to hear that they deserve to be in this position because they, didn't, they had the chance to get vaccinated, then they didn't. And you all have heard this. I even heard of doctors refusing to treat the unvaccinated. I mean, that's, I mean, that's bizarre world to me. As Christians, you, we will be forced to make choices about these issues in the near future. Some of you already are, and that's part of the reason why I'm bringing it up. Some of us ha are already having to make these decisions of how to handle this in this world where it's increasingly cl closing in. But the Bible's not silent about these things. In James 2, 15 and 16, it says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is it? Now you might ask what that has to do with vaccines. Well, in that case, those who showed up at the door unable to support themselves because of their, uh, uh, the, the, those who showed up at the door were unable to support themselves because of their allegiance to Christ. Get this. Those who answered, be warmed and be filled, did so because they didn't want to face the same fate. They didn't want to be associated directly with these people because they didn't want to be put in that same position. Church, you may very well be faced with this dilemma in the, in the near future. I hope not. I, I, hope I'm, I hope that I'm wrong. 
But what will you do when a brother or sister comes knocking because they've lost their job, they've lost their livelihood because of a government mandate, and it costs you much more than just the food and the clothing that you're going to have to give them? What are you going to do? What if it costs you your livelihood? Here's the danger for the church. When we give in to things like the government interfering in the church, or we allow the government, government to mandate our health decisions without standing up to it, we're opening the door to a host of other ways that they can rule us. You can't be naive, brothers and sisters. We live in a society that's anti-God. They are bent on opposing God and His people. Let me just say it this way. Church, you are firmly in their crosshairs. If you don't hunt, it's the scope with the crosshairs. Again, that's not a, a, that's not a dad joke. The governments of the world do not like Bible-believing Christians. We're, we stand against their, their agenda. They, we stand in the way. Many churches want to avoid the uncomfortable truth that we are at war. Just a few days ago, a few days ago Ray Comfort published an article titled, Christianity is Warfare. He, in that article, he writes, Some years ago, a traditional church dropped onward Christian soldiers from their song index because it made reference to war. That's understandable for people who have never been born again. War is the last thing on their minds. They are peacemakers meeting in a building which they think is the church. They are not born of the Spirit, so they live in a natural world. They are spiritually insensitive because they are spiritually dead. End quote. Sobering words. Said another way, spiritually, spiritually dead people are not in a battle because they've already surrendered to the enemy. And the enemy doesn't care about them because they, he already owns them. Church, we experience, as we experience the battle raging around us, we must not defect from the Lord's army. We must act like men and be strong and courageous. So here's the question that ultimately must be answered as we fight in this spiritual war. What is our source of truth as we live in this post-truth culture? What is our defense against the lies being propagated in our world? And how are we to respond as individuals and as the church? How are we to stand strong in the Lord, and how are we to don or put on the armor of God? And I believe that Ephesians 6, 10-20 contains the answers to these questions and, and more. Now, as we get started this morning, I should tell you that we are not going to complete the outline this morning. You probably looked at it, and if you know my preaching, you know that that's the case, because I'm not going to cover more than a few verses. I think three might be my record. But as I studied these verses, as I study these verses, several questions have come up that I believe deserve an answer. And I hope you remember, according to Ephesians 4, it is my job to equip you. So I'm going to take the time to fully treat this subject. I cannot partially treat it, so I want to take the time as a church to fully understand it. So in Ephesians 6.10, if, you would, if you're not already there, turn there. Let me read our text of Scripture this morning. Starting in verse 10, going down through verse 17. Really, the, the section goes all the way to 20, but we're just going to go through 17 right now. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In a book by... Bill Myers and David Wimbish, we find the following story. The only way to ship fresh fish to, to North, or fresh North Atlantic cod from Boston to San Francisco during the 19th century was to sail all the way around the South American continent. That trip took months, so as you can imagine, the first attempts to dress the cod in Boston and pack it on ice failed miserably. The fish were inedible when they got to California. In the next attempt, the cod were placed in holding tanks full of water shipped to California alive and dressed there. Now, you might think that that would be a better attempt, but the results were no less satisfactory. The fish didn't get much exercise during the trip, so they were pasty and relatively tasteless. Finally, someone suggested, why don't we put some catfish in with with the cod? Now, you might think that's a weird idea, but it wasn't such a wild idea since, the cat, since catfish are natu- a natural enemy of cod. Sure enough, when a few catfish were placed in the tanks with them, the cod kept swimming around to stay out of eating range. So when they reached San Francisco, they were in perfect shape. Now, I believe this story helps illustrate that God uses evil to strengthen his people to bring about his purposes. God uses evil to strengthen his people and to expose their weaknesses. God uses evil to to give us endurance and make us more like his son. That's what James says in James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea is that the trial uh, that's interacting with your true faith uh, brings, brings endurance, and that endurance makes you more like Christ, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But it's God's use of evil for this purpose that is an uncomfortable truth. But it's a truth nonetheless. As Christians, when we come to embrace it, that God does use evil, that God does use bad things, that we will find solace in it. Now, let me help you understand why. Now, as we have progressed through this series, some questions have arisen that must be answered, in my opinion, before we move on. Last week, we showed that God is, in fact, sovereign over all things, and that He does, in fact, limit evil. We even saw, as as I just said earlier, that God uses evil. He did in the life of Job. He uses evil for his purposes. He did that in the life of Joseph. Uh, He did that in, in, in many other biblical characters' lives. God's sovereignty has been captured by the Westminster Confession, which states this, God from all eternity did, 
by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. End quote. In the words of Psalm 115.3, it says, But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Now, you might think, well, I, okay, I can get on board with that. But what about evil? Isaiah 45.7, The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Now, two, two major questions arise from those statements. First, can it be said that God is the author of evil? Second question is, why does God expose his people to evil? Now, we've already addressed that second question. The first question, though, is related to God's decree. In the words of John Piper, he has designed, that would be God, God has designed from all eternity, eternity and is infallibly forming with every event a magnificent mosaic of redemptive history, end quote. Mike Riccardi, Riccardi responds to this quote. He says this, Piper's helpful summary presents three characteristics of God's decree that succinctly encapsulate the teaching of Scripture. God's decree is eternal. God's decree is immutable. And God's dec decree is exhaustive. Now, each of these truths really deserve full treatment, but for now, we should understand that Scripture teaches God's decree is eternal in that He made His eternal decree before the foundation of the world. Before time existed, He made His eternal decree, and it stands forever. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and, your, and in your book were all written the days that, it, that were ordained for me, basically what David is saying there, what David is saying there is that before he was born, before the foundation of the world, his days were ordained by God. When there was not yet one of them is what it ultimately says. Scripture also teaches, so it's, it's, it's eternal, Scripture also teaches that God's decree is immutable or unchangeable, and that God's will cannot be thwarted. So he's made this eternal decree from before the foundation of the world, and nothing can change it. Nothing can change it. Psalm thirty-three, eleven: The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. It stands forever. It, it, is, it, is, it is what he says it will be, and it will be what he says it will be. And it has been what he says it has been. The Bible also shows us that his decree is exhaustive and that it includes all things. Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So all things, all things. He has ordained all things. No, nothing is accepted. In the words of John Frame, he says, through the centuries of redemptive history, everything has come from God. He has planned and done it all. He has not merely set boundaries for creaturely action, but has actually made everything happen. That's an uncomfortable truth. It's an uncomfortable truth. God is the ultimate cause of all things. 
You mean even Hitler? You mean even Stalin? Yeah, all things. No exceptions. But this raises a unique question. How can God be the cause of evil and sinful actions which he has spoken against and not be charged with that said unrighteousness? Now some of you, and I've done this myself, some of you may appeal to what's called divine permission. You may say that though God is ultimately in control, he does not ordain evil, he merely allows it to happen. He takes a hands-off approach to it. But is that a satisfactory answer? If God has done everything, if God has ordained everything, is it satisfactory then that he allows evil? The answer must be no. Because God's decree is eternal, unchanging, and exhaustive. To say that God allows something is to say that he relinquishes control of it. Said another way, in in eternity past, God made his decree without any external input. Without any external input. Psalm, or Isaiah 40, 13 and 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and with who, did he, who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge, and informed him in the way of understanding? Of course, the answer if you, believe it, if you believe Scripture, the answer is that no one get, has given him, given him counsel. And yes, this includes evil. We saw that in Isaiah 45, 7, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Now, perhaps the greatest example of God ordaining evil can be found in Peter's words in Acts 2.23, and I think it's the answer ultimately to the conundrum that we find ourselves in, in understanding this. This man, that would be the Lord Jesus, he said this in Acts 2.23, this man, the Lord Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, in all of this, are we to say that God is the author of sin and the chargeable cause of evil? The question is, and the, the problem with that is, is that doesn't Scripture teach that God is righteous? In the words of Mike Riccardi, in fact, Scripture teaches both. That God is unquestionably righteous, and that He indeed ordains sinful events and actions. Again, that's uncomfortable. But if that's what Scripture teaches, and it is, It is not our place to sit in judgment upon and question the consistency of those declarations. Rather, it falls to us to receive both as true on the authority of God's infallible, inerrant inerrant word. Again, in the words of John Frame. God does not bring about sinful human actions. To deny this, or God does bring about sinful human actions. To deny this or to charge God with wickedness on account of it is not open to a Bible-believing Christian. Somehow we must confess that God has a role in bringing evil about and that in doing so, He is holy and blameless, end quote. Perhaps the best answer to this question can be seen at the cross. 
We saw in Acts 2.23 that the cross occurred to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, in other words, God is the ultimate cause of his son's death on the cross. Absolutely an evil act, was it not? But God is the ultimate cause. He's the one that sent his son into the world to die on the cross. He's the one that poured out his wrath on his son for, uh, for, for, as payment for sin. He pre predestined every event which led to Christ's death all the way from his conception, all the way to his birth, all the way to his life, all the way to his death, all the way to his resurrection and ascension. Every, every action was according to his preordained plan. He guaranteed that it would occur. But God did not carry out the actual crucifixion. The Jews pushed the Romans to crucify him. They even set a known criminal free when they could have set the Lord of glory free. Therefore, the Jews get this, and I'm not a lawyer, but if, if you are a lawyer, you'll get it. The Jews are the proximate cause of the crucifixion. In other words, if not for their actions, Jesus would not have been crucified. In their case, they willingly chose, they willingly chose, in time, they willingly chose to incite the Romans to crucify the Lord of glory. The Romans, on the other hand, they actually carried out the crucifixion. Therefore, they are the efficient cause of Jesus' death. They willingly, willingly carried out, they willingly carried out the brutality of the cross because they chose to do so. They don't have anyone to blame. They willingly did it. They are fully responsible for doing so. So, the question is, what absolves God from being the chargeable cause of this evil? We'll see Herod, Pilate, Judas, and the Jews conspired to crucify Jesus because they wanted to be rid of him for their evil purposes. It was for their purposes. In the, in the words of Mike Riccardi, God ordained the evil of the cross for the good that it would bring, namely the salvation of his people from their sin. Riccardi goes on to say, God may be the ultimate cause of all that happens, even evil, and yet not incur the guilt that rightly belongs to the proximate and the efficient cause. The proximate cause, the Jews, the efficient cause, the Romans. So, because he is never the efficient cause of evil, and he always ordains evil for good, that's Genesis 50, 20. You, Joseph speaking to your brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He's never the, he's never the efficient or proximate cause of evil. Uh, God does not, does not will sin as sin, but for the good which he desires to bring from it. Now, I fully realize I see it in some of your faces. That's a hard one. It's a hard one. But that's okay. Because the truth is, understanding a holy God, from a finite point of view, 
from a, from a point of view of being in an evil world system, from the point of view of living in our flesh, we'll spend eternity trying to understand it. But the truth is, we can't get away from, is the truth of Genesis 50-20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, in this series, we've learned that evil is a rea- reality in this world. But let me, let me say one other thing. You, ask, you may ask why. You may ask why, and I think that's a valid question. Why evil? That's the problem of evil, right? Well, the answer ultimately it lies in his glory. The answer ultimately lies in, in understanding God for who he is. And I think that, that, uh, that ordaining evil is a demonstration of his goodness and his righteousness. Now you say, why? Well, if there was never evil, if there was never anything such as evil, would we truly understand God and his righteousness and his goodness and his glory? The answer is no. We understand it in light of those things. We understand it. We understand that he is a good God because we see the opposite of that. Well, in this series, we've learned that evil is a reality in this world. Satan and the demons are unquestionably real. We also learn that God is sovereign over all things, including evil. As such, Satan is unquestionably restrained. I mean, he's using Satan for his purposes. And we've seen that Satan is full of wicked schemes because which he uses to deceive his people, or deceive God's people. Therefore, it is clear that Satan is undoubtedly wicked. Lastly, we have seen that God is the ultimate cause of all things, including wickedness. But he cannot be charged with said wickedness because he intends them for our good and his glory. Now, as we push forward in this passage, we've arrived at verse, chapter 6, verse 13, where Paul describes, begins to describe the full armor of God piece by piece. In verse 13, Paul reiterates the urgency for the Christian to take up the full armor of God to be able to resist in the evil day, in our evil day. And verses 13 through 17 gives the six critical pieces of armor that we need to have the full armor of God for resisting the schemes of the devil. First, you must prepare by girding yourself with the belt of truth. Second, by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Third, by shodding your feet with, to share the gospel of peace. Fourth, by taking up the shield of faith. Fifth, by taking up the helmet of salvation. Now we're gonna, and sixth, taking up the sword of the Spirit. Now we're going to slowly work through this, so I want you to look at your text in 613. Now as my sermon outline indicates, I see 13, verse 13 as Paul's proposition statement for what he describes in Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. As such, I see verse 13 as a hinge, if you will, between verses 10 through 12 and 14 through 17. In other words, verse 13 concludes the previous section and introduces what he'll say in the next verses. Now look at your text in verse 13. Paul writes, Therefore, therefore take up the full armor of God. Now, it's interesting to me that both the ESV and the NASB, the English Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible, translates this Greek expression, therefore. Many times the, phrase, the Greek phrase is translated for this reason. 
That's exactly the, the way it's translated in the New English translation. Now, the Holman Christian Standard Bible give, gives this phrase a little, more, a little more urgency, which I think is actually there. It says, this is why you must take up the full armor of God. Now, that phrase introduces what's called a causal conclusion. Verses 11 and 12 state the problem plainly. Namely, we need to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The struggle that we have is not against an enemy that we can see or defeat on our own. We face a a wicked enemy that is bent on our destruction. In effect, Paul is saying, for this reason, since all that is true, or on account of this, you must take up the full armor of God. Now, you can understand as you think through it, the urgency that the Holman Christian Standard Bible gives. Uh, This is why you must. Without it, you are naked. You are vulnerable. You must take up the full armor of God. Look back at your text. Uh, He says, take up. Take up the full armor. This, this word translated take up has a military context. We have to, we have to understand that. It, in that sense, it means to take up your weapons. The, the logical conclusion is that we are in a war. Therefore, we need the weapons of war. Uh, we need spiritual weapons of war, if you will, because it's a spiritual enemy that we're, we're facing. The weapons we need are unlike any worldly ones. They, they, there is a sense of urgency here. Now, I love sports. I love them because they reveal so much about our character. When I attended seminary, I coached the offensive line for a Christian high school. I was even asked uh, briefly, I think they figured out I didn't know anything, but they asked me to be an offensive line consultant for a large local public high school. That didn't work out for for a variety of reasons, but I think that football is a good representation of this spiritual struggle. I believe that there are a variety of reasons, actually, why our society wants to feminize sports, especially sports like football. But one reason, one major reason, is that we as a society, we're afraid of combat. We don't want to experience a bloody fight. I'm not advocating that we go and fight wars as a country. My son is in the the military, and I don't want to see him shipped off to fight a foreign war unless it's absolutely necessary. But I will tell you that sometimes a bloody fight is absolutely necessary. But I do believe that sports such as football and rugby help prepare young men to be leaders in battle. Now, I don't want to violate your sensibilities, but... Rugby and football and even hockey can be bloody battles. I'll never forget a a friend who played at the University of Arkansas on the rugby team. I mean, it wasn't even an official sport. He was also an engineering student. He would come to class and ask, like, he would come to show up at class and ask, was I here last week? Speaking of concussions, right? During my time coaching, I saw many young men sacrifice for the team. But here's the point. So many Christians want to avoid the violent spiritual war. We live in a society that wants to to avoid these things. Many Christians want to live in their comfortably large, ornate homes. 
They want to drive nice cars. They want their children to attend the finest schools. They want to live in, the, in, the, in nice cities with lots to do. They want the convenience of shopping at the best stores. They want to attend a nice church with lots of programs, especially for the kids. Now, none of these things are sinful in and of themselves. But their actions, in many cases, manifest a heart that wants the American lifestyle with a Christian veneer. They're okay if, the Christi- if their Christianity doesn't cost them too much. They're all right if, as long as Christianity is respectable. just read an article this past week about the Christian music scene, and, and so many are deconst- deconstructing their faith. The truth is they never had faith in the first place. They just, they just they found themselves in a situation where it was, it was a good thing to be a Christian. But when it became a bad thing to be a Christian, they don't want to be a Christian anymore. When they realize that they, they are in a bloody battle, they don't want it anymore. They want that comfortable lifestyle. They don't want anything to do with a bloody Savior. Now, before you say that's not me, please recognize that we're all susceptible to this rotten view of the Christian life. Before you say, why are you picking on me? You should acknowledge that your comfortable lifestyle does not match the pages of the New Testament. Now, we have to... The, the, one of the things that I came to when I was a, I was a manager, I, I made good money, and, and one of the things I came to is that I have much more than my Lord ever had. Much more. Now, I'm not advocating that we go give up everything. I'm not saying that. But we should recognize the words of Mark 8.34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now in 6.13, Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus, they are in the throes of a spiritual battle with a wicked enemy they cannot see. They are part of a war to set the captives free from the clutches of Satan. We as Christians, we need to take up these implements of war. We must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Look back at 6.13. Why, why, Why do we do this? so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. We're to take up the full armor of God so that we will be able to resist. We will be able to to be set against the the wiles of the devil. We are to be able to stand against. This word uh, that that he he uses to resist is the same word they used in the Greek translation of Joshua 1.5. Speaking of Joshua, just prior to going into the promised land, God said, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as it has been with Moses. I, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. The idea is that nothing can overcome you because I am with you. You, can, uh, you, can, you will be able to withstand the, the onslaught. The same word is used in James 4, 7. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's also used in First Peter 5, 9. But resist him, firm in your faith. In the context of 6, 13, the Christian must take up the armor of God to withstand the onslaught of satanic forces. The only way we can resist that that is, stop his advancement into, the, into our lives and, and through the system in which we live, the world system, this ordered evil, this wicked cosmos, is to have, the on, have on the full armor of God. I'm reminded of Joshua 1.7. Only be strong and very courageous. 
Be careful to do all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it, from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. Christian, if you, want to be, if you want to flourish, if you want our church to flourish, then you will do all that is all according to, or do everything, or be careful to do according to all that God has commanded us. I'm also reminded of 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on alert, stand firm, act like men, be strong. True men, beloved, true men, courageous men, take up the armor of God in the battle against satanic forces. Look back at your text. Paul writes to resist in the evil day. In the evil day. We live in an age where evil controls our world. And as such, the evil day can be defined as this current age. In Ephesians 5.16, Paul said, Making the most of your, of your time because the days are evil. In, in that verse, I believe Paul was referring to the evil that dominates our current world in this age. As such, Christians are to make the most of our time because those days, the days that we live in, are evil. But back in 6.13, I think Paul has this idea in view, but I would argue he has something more in mind. We live in an age where evil dominates, no doubt, but I believe, I believe this day will last until Christ comes to rule the world. But I also believe that Paul recognizes that the devil is opportunistic. It's no mistake that he waited to attack our Lord after 40 days and 40 nights when he was hungry and tired. So not only is Paul saying we need to resist in this evil age, I, be, I think he recognizes that the attacks of Satan are strategic in nature, and they don't come all at once. They're repeated. And we need to be ready, armed with the full armor of God, when Satan opportunistically attacks. And he will. He already has. And he'll continue to do so. The eternal rewards are reaped by those who persevere in standing, resisting the schemes of the devil. And the words of John MacArthur, the real testimony to the honor of Christ is given by those who stand, who resist. The real usefulness belongs to those who stand and resist, end quote. Look back at your text. Paul writes, having done everything, having done everything, I think Paul is calling for the believer to do everything to resist the devil. As Christians, we, we are to know the battle is real. We have an adversary who is bent on stopping the church. He is bent on stopping this church. Therefore, we need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And if you're going to do that, you need to put on the full armor of God so that we may stand firm and hold our ground. Now, very briefly... I want to look at this first critical preparation. won't be able to dive very deep into it. We're already past our time. Look at your text. Paul writes, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with, with truth. Anytime the Bible repeats something, you should see it as a key point. In this passage, Paul says, you know, I think three different times, to stand firm or resist the schemes of, of the devil. How are we to do that? First, we are to gird ourselves with the belt of truth. As Paul begins to describe this armor of God, he uses the Roman soldier as, a, as an example. Roman soldiers were everywhere in Paul's day. Rome, the Romans dominated the world at that time. A militarist, from a military standpoint. The Roman soldier, uh, as such, was an impressive sight. So it should not be surprising that Paul uses this analogy. As the, the soldier prepared for, for battle, they put on a belt or a sash, and maybe it was even a girdle. 
Uh, in the ancient days, men wore long robes that would get in the way of work or fighting, so they would, they would wrap up the, the long draping material. This was called girding one's loins. We have to recognize that the, the weakness of the soldier in the, we have to recognize the weakness of the soldier in the growing area in the lower back. And we should recognize that he couldn't go to battle with his dress flapping in the wind. The Roman soldier needed, soldier needed to be capable of, of agility and quickness. Now, Paul may have been speaking of a girdle which, which wrapped around his waist and protected his groin area. This might be made of leather or some strong, flexible material to protect and bind everything. Now, this girdle may have been bound by a leather belt and a buckle. I, I, I wasn't able to really land on that. But ultimately, we understand that it's a protection and a readiness that he's talking about here. Uh, the soldier might attach, according to John MacArthur, the soldier might attach his weapon supporting a, a sword or a bow or some arrows. That sash would also have some identification marks on it, maybe indicating what battles he had fought, what battles he had won, whether or not he was a, awarded a decoration, decoration of honor for his hero, heroism, end quote. You see, in Paul's mind, he used this analogy to speak of readiness for battle and protection in the fights. Now, probably going fast, but it's critical to recognize here what Paul is doing. Paul is actually alluding to Isaiah 11.5, where Isaiah describes the judgment of the Messiah, that he is the one who will judge. Now, Isaiah 11 describes Jesus' second coming. Now, John describes that scene in Revelation 19. <clears throat> in Revelation 19, he says, And I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are m many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now get this. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he is the, a name written, <clears throat> King of kings and Lord of lords. We will be, church, we will be a part of that great army. We will be there with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Even now, each Christian has been drafted into Christ's army. We are to be prepared for battle. We are to ensure that we are protected. We are to recognize that it's the Lord who will go before us and fight this mighty battle. Back in Ephesians 6, as part of Christ's army, then, we are to know the truth of God's word. Paul's language shows that we are to prepare ourselves by knowing the truth. We are pre to prepare ourselves for battle by knowing the gospel, which is the good news that Christ has actually won the victory. We have joined him on this victory march, which began at his conception and birth, and continues until the day he returns with his church in victory. We saw that in Revelation 19. In the meantime, we are to stand firm. 
We are to resist the onslaughts of Satan, knowing that this is a battle that he will not win. Earlier, I referenced an article by Ray Comfort. He added this change to the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, to describe the church today. Backward Christian soldiers, fleeing from the fight, with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. Christ, our rightful master, stands against the foe, but forward into battle we loathe to go. Like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God, brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. We are much divided, many bodies we, having many doctrines, not much charity. Having many doctrines, not much charity. Crowns and thorns may perish, kings rise and wane, but the church of Jesus Christ hidden does remain. Gates of hell should never against the church prevail. We have Christ on promise, but think that it will fail. Sit here then, ye people. Join our useless throng. Blend with, your, with ours your voices in a feeble song. Blessings, ease, comfort, ask from Christ the King. With modern thinking, we don't do a thing. Now, I cannot leave this sermon on such a down note. I don't believe these things describe Grace Bible Church. I don't believe these things describe many other faithful churches like her. I trust that GBC has joined the fight. I trust that GBC will continue the preparations. More than those things, I trust that we will be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In Christ, with belt of truth of the gospel, we will stand against the devil's lies. We will be an army bold whose battle cry is love as we call, hear the call of Christ our captain. We are charged to go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to preach the truth that Jesus, the Son of God, came to live a perfect life. He came to die a bloody death at the hands of a, hands of a wicked enemy. He endured the Father's wrath for our sins. And He was killed. He was buried. And He was raised triumphantly on the third day. And he is seated victoriously at the right hand of the Father, even now in the heavenlies. He has conquered sin and death and has crushed the head of the serpent. And if, he does, if you don't know him, if you don't know him, don't be like that rich man, Luke 16. Listen to the word of God now. He bids you come. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this rich time in your word, time to gather. May we be a church that is an army, standing firm, knowing the truth, willing to die for the truth, that that's what is required. May we not, may we not be rotten inside with just a veneer of Christianity over the top of it. But may we truly, in our heart, desire to follow you. And it's in the name of your matchless Son that we pray. Amen.